Welcome to the River Rain Show. I'm your host, Catherine Allen, clairvoyant medium and astrologer. Tonight, we will share great music, movie clips, short stories, or quotes, all on our theme of this week. So grab yourself a tea, get yourself comfy and warm, sit back and be soothed by the music, the inspiration, and the introspection. Welcome to the River Rain Show. than the sun Yeah, the bonnie boat was one as we sail into the mystic Heart now hear the sailors cry Smell the sea and feel the sky Let your soul and spirit fly and where that foghorn blows, I will be coming home. Mm. And when the foghorn blows, I wanna hear it. I don't have the fear. You know I will be coming home Yeah, when that foghorn whistle blows I gotta hear it I don't have to fear it And I wanna rock on gypsy soul Just like way back in the days of old And together we will fold Hey! 
Good evening. Welcome to the River Rain Show. We are already the middle of April, it seems. Yeah, it's uh, it's been quite an, a weird time for everybody. Weird in the, in the sense of coping with a new reality of being inside, um, being in close quarters, either on your own or with people that you live with. And whatever intensity that that brings out of us, right? Because it's it's going it's going to, for everybody. And whatever you're, you know, doing to adapt to cope, um, the mindset that you're choosing to operate by during a time like this is also super important. And um, tonight's show is going to be all about. Uh, what I'm going to call COVID mystics. I've been thinking a lot about this topic. Well, I think about it all my life. But particularly now, when we're all forced to quarantine, it's an interesting time to consider the path of the mystic. Because it's one way to positively frame what you're experiencing right now. So that instead of feeling you know, perhaps trapped, perhaps uh, punished, all kinds of things people can feel because you have to stay home. If you're able to wrap your head around your passage of quarantine as a time that you are going into the mystic, meaning if you can wrap your head around the fact that maybe you can accept or choose this solitude time or this inner time then you can make a very productive use of this time Um, mysticism is full of you know every tradition every religion on the planet has a mystical side has mysticism to it even if we don't talk about it as much Um, you could say that Jesus was a mystic He went off for 40 days in the desert. He had visions and dreams. He had animals appear to him. He had predictions of of things. You can, the Buddha was definitely a mystic. He went off, he exiled himself from, from his normal life, from his family, in order to reach enlightenment. You can think of famous uh, author like Henry David Thoreau. I went into the woods because I wished to live deeply. You know, who, who, who did? He did. He went off into the woods and he lived in a cabin pretty much alone. Uh, I forget for how long, but it was pretty long. Uh, I'm pretty sure 
I'd have to double check my facts, but it might have been a couple of years. And um, he secluded himself so that he could so that he could write, so that he could think in a in a whole other level that just does not happen when you're constantly um, interacting with people. And uh, it's not a judgment on it, on social interactions because they're very important. But you have to also, or I'm hoping, you, you know, during this show, maybe you'll ponder this um, other side of, of this other paradigm that there are, there are levels of insight and awareness, of, of thought, of intuition, of quieting the mind. There are levels and layers of um, emotion uh, related to like quite literally your body cells and the memories that you're storing in your throughout your your whole system whether you want to say that's in your bones or in your aura but we're all a product of all of our experiences and all of our environment and everything we put into our bodies everything we're uh, adapting to and we've been in a period of time in history where we are bombarded more than ever and then we sit here in our little places or our homes and look around and go man how did I accumulate so much stuff and the thing is it can be it's it's a reflection of how much stuff we've been unable or have no time to digest internally and now we're given that time. And this would be a positive reframing of what's going on. And again, we can choose the reality or the paradigm or the lens that we want to look at this through. And it doesn't mean there isn't suffering and um, that it isn't terrifying in many ways. It is. But this time that you are hopefully respecting the quarantine and staying inside can be used in a mystical in a mystical way to connect to yourself more than you have perhaps in a long long time i know it's happening for me and i'm already inclined to be an introspective person and even um even when i oh, for years, the last few years especially, I'd say I, I'm, I'm like craving more time to meditate or more time for quiet that just never comes. It just never comes. And I don't also, you know, carve it out and say, screw everybody messaging me for this or that. <laughs> you know, um, I'm taking a few days where I'm not talking to anybody. Like nobody really does that. Even if I recognize the, the benefit of doing that. The only time that I, in the last uh, decade or so that I've done that was a meditation retreat, silent retreat, um, which is a, a very powerful thing you can do. So if any, if any of you wants to give yourself a self-given meditation retreat, now's the time. You know, anything that you have not been tending to that requires some time and space and um, the absence of running out the door somewhere, the absence of having to interact with as many 
people or energies or cars on the road. Anything that just reduces the stimulation that we're all dealing with that basically excites or agitates our system. Um, even if you can handle it, even if you find it thrilling, it still agitates your system. It's, there's only so much stimulation people can take without effects. And so we've all been overstimulated for a long, long time. And now you might feel as you're inside, oh my God, I'm trapped, I'm victimized. Some people do. I'm bored. Boredom is often the call right before the, the deep stuff comes up. You feel bored. Um, other people are maintaining their busy, busy. They've got so much to do at home that they're fine. They're introverts already, or they've got projects, or they're a reader, or that, you know, they've got 10 kids at home that, so they're, you know, you might still find it hard to find this inner time. But I'm sure even in the midst of that, that there's probably a little settling of the dust and a little more calm, a little more uh, sense of, of space in the house. And if there isn't, well, um, try to also just understand that whatever is coming up right now has been, just admit it to yourself. It's been there for a while under the surface, just sort of ready, ready to come forth. So tonight we're going to take a look at um, a couple of uh, clips that I found. One is a BBC talk that's going to go for about 40 minutes or so about solitude. Um, and uh, the other one is the psychology of solitude. And then, of course, as usual, I, I intermix it with some music. And I hope tonight that maybe you'll be able to find a positive way to see this COVID-19 quarantine period as um, maybe even as a gift of a, a pause button that won't, that may never come again as well. So on that note, let's um, just wanted to announce a couple quick things. I've been uh, busy while we've been in quarantine because I already work online and at home a lot. So it's given me the chance to revamp and rethink some things and to finally get down to some projects that I had in mind. So currently I have an online intuition class that is ready to go. If you're interested to learn, it's sent to you in your email, uh, 11 days, uh, one video per day. And it's based on my book, a little bit of intuition, which you can get at amazon.com or .ca. Um, so if you want to develop your intuition skills, then you've got my book and my, my course. I also have set up a um, astrology course. For that, you go to patreon.com and look for clairvoyant medium Catherine Allen. This is a, uh, a subscriber site. If you uh, enjoy my work, whether this is the podcasts or classes or other things I post or readings I give, um, so the astrology is running for a year, and uh, while we're in the sign of Aries, I'm going to be delving into everything Aries, what all the planets mean in Aries, what all of the, the rising and the moon sign and everything, what does it mean when it's in Aries, and by the time we go into Taurus, um, by like the 23rd or so, it's going to be all about Taurus for a month, so 
you can join us now and you'll you'll be in the first sign of the zodiac or you can jump in at any time you want it's it's a, a year-long course for that you go to patreon and you subscribe the third thing i've set up and i've i've made a couple of the videos and uh, i'm going to continue to build this course it should be ready by the new moon which is uh, i believe the 22nd of april uh, is an online tarot course so if you're interested to learn the tarot this course is also a year and it's quite it's going to be very thorough this is my version um, i finally have made the sort of college level style classes online that i've been wanting to create for a long time and um after that we'll see we'll see how many people write to me wanting other things uh, as offshoots of these courses so if you need to reach me for any other reason I'm, as as many people are i'm working online i'm working with zoom or i'm working with facebook or whatsapp or the telephone um, online sessions are just as good as in person and hopefully soon enough we'll we'll be back in person again too uh, but if you want to reach me for anything, you can go to river-rain.com. My contact info is there, and you can sign up for my free newsletter as well if you like. And all the podcasts, are you can download them all. You can download them and hear them all on my website once we're done this evening. So let us, let's go to our song of the week, which is Suzanne Vega, Solitude Standing. Suzanne Vega with Solitude Standing. So, <clears throat> we're going to take a look now at what kind of feelings solitude, you know, tends to, to bring up for us. Um, I think there's a fear a lot of the time of solitude. A lot of people are afraid to be alone, right? The thing is... And this is getting deep right off the get-go, isn't it? But the thing is, we're never alone. Even if you think you're all alone, you're never alone. And the more you spend time alone, you'll realize you're never alone. Like, look, look at how many people try to uh, isolate themselves, let's say, going off into the woods, like we mentioned that author, Henry David Thoreau. I mean, was he wasn't alone. There's energy an aliveness in nature. He might not have had another human around. He wasn't alone. He wasn't alone because he had animals and birds and trees and rivers and rocks. And they all have life to them. And they all have a language to them. And if we're never alone, we never learn to hear that language or communicate with a squirrel or identify different calls of birds or know the different names of the trees. So we're never uh, alone. We're, a, we're not with other people. And people are, I think, in general, afraid of being alone. Um, it's a very old, old, old wound or fear, like primal fear, that being alone means that you were exiled or left behind um, by your tribe and 
you know, you're, you're pretty much left there to fend for yourself without help, without food or shelter, perhaps. Uh, you know, it, we're social, we're social beings, that's for sure. But I think far more of us can uh, enjoy times of solitude more than we care to admit as well. Um, and, and being constantly social, while it can be a lot of fun, it also prevents you from really digging deeper. Um, and a lot of problems that keep resurfacing as patterns and patterns and patterns, whether it's your personal life or on the planet, uh, they don't get solved by just doing the same old thing and staying busy chatting. You know, things don't get solved on a deeper level unless you're willing to go to the deeper level. And that means you're going to need solitude in order to think through, in order to get through whatever resistance you might have or feelings you might have until you slow your slow yourself down or cry it out or rage whatever you need to do purge yourself of some old feelings and then suddenly you'll you'll see that the waters are calmer and you can see clearly and you can see the bigger picture and you can see things that were going on behind the scenes or behind the surface um so many people walk around feeling lonely or misunderstood uh hoping that you know i see this all the time in my work with people coming for for readings people hope that their um ex wife or son or or husband is going to one day wake up and realize you know how much they hurt them and have regrets or or parents you know that that hurt people that felt hurt by their uh, parents or or parents by their children hoping that they're going to be reflecting and and uh feeling some sort of remorse or regret how is that how are we ever going to get to the level of remorse and regret and making amends if we don't introspect we won't so the fear i think of being alone on one hand is stigma like judgment why are you left behind why are you, why are you alone why are you not part of the tribe you know it's almost like the ugly duckling where you rejected by your mother you know and now you're left on your own to fend for yourself or you're the runt of the litter sort of thing in the animal kingdom where the mother doesn't think you'll survive and rejects you um this is very tribal very old memory that we have going on in our dna i would say where we have maybe in some life or another been exiled or left and so there's a deep primal fear like we won't survive if we're alone and i think that is a lot of what is activated it's yes it's true where there's a virus and there is a threat but at the same time it's exacerbated times a thousand by these you know collective societal wounds of oh no i'm alone i won't survive and the panic sets in and then people start buying way too much toilet paper for some reason in this case but uh <laughs> then there's the other aspect besides the collective and the tribal of being alone and the that fear of being alone is not so much i'm going to i'm not going to make it if i'm alone i can't survive there's the other side of it which is oh shit i have to face my feelings now crap i don't want to remember that painful memory damn i thought i was already over that person 
shit, I thought my job was going okay. It turns out I'm not as happy as I thought I was. Whatever it is that's coming up. You have a chance now to really take a look at it. And yeah, it, it, it could be quite intense. But I encourage you to ride through this and really take a deeper look at it instead of running because you'll get to those calmer waters and that better, deeper decision. And uh, it's worth the work. It's worth the inner work that it takes to get there. I'm going to read you uh, just a quote, uh, well, a, a Sufi saying. Then I'm going to take you into some music and straight into a BBC special on uh, the philosophy of solitude. So you might want to um, grab yourself something uh, to drink and settle yourself in before the long talk, because it's about 40 minutes, 45 minutes. So this is a Sufi saying, and I love it. It says, silence is not the absence of something, but the presence of everything. Beautiful, isn't it?
Melissa Lane, Professor of Politics at Princeton University. Simon Blackburn, Professor of Philosophy at the New College of the Humanities and Fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge. And John Haldane, Professor of Philosophy at the University of St Andrews. Melissa Lane, can we begin by clarifying what solitude means to a philosopher? Solitude isn't simply being alone. It's an active achievement, a distinctive condition of experience in which one can still the voices of society in the mind, and that allows a form of authentic experience. And that might be keeping company with oneself, or it might be an experience of nature or of God. Are you distinguishing, are we in this program going to distinguish solitude from loneliness or solitary confinement? Absolutely. So I think solitude is is not simply being alone. You might be alone and not be in solitude if you're spending all your time thinking about society um, or engaging with 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 social um, questions. And I think solitude is normally something chosen. But it might be that if one were in solitary confinement, one might be able to nevertheless choose that inner experience. Um, so I think that's an open question if one is forced into aloneness, whether one can actually still achieve um, achieve solitude. And of course, some, some have in very difficult circumstances. Do you think there are several, so several degrees of solitude or just one? No, I think there are. And there are differences, for example, as to whether one thinks that in reading one is experiencing solitude. Um, for some philosophers, that's been the case. And for others, even books are a form of society that has to be silenced in order to, to genuinely experience solitude. Starting at near the beginning, as, as we often, in, starting as we, back to the Greeks, we, one of the first philosophers to give serious attention to the idea of solitude was Plato, who's been called the first poet of solitude. What was his view? For Plato, the key um, to solitude is that it's the condition in which we can think. 
So he even defines thought as an inner dialogue um, in the sophist. And it's that ability to actually reflect, to be with oneself in an, in an inner conversation. And I think one of the things that's interesting about that is that we see there that solitude in a way is modeled on society. It's a form of dialogue, but it's an internal dialogue as opposed to an external one. And Plato shows us wonderful images of Socrates wrapped in that kind of contemplation on his way to a dinner party, and he stands on the porch for hours, um, not going in because he's so absorbed in, in his um, solitary thinking. Did Plato go so far as to say that if you sought deep solitude, you had to cut yourself off from society? I think there is a real concern in the Greeks um, as to, you know, if you're only involved in solitude, is that even possible for human beings? Um, and I think Plato didn't think it was. So, so so Socrates might be alone for several hours. He might even be alone for 24 hours as once on campaign, on military campaign, he stands wrapped thinking. But ultimately, you come back into conversation with others. And actually, that relationship between solitude, a kind of dialectic between solitude and society is, I think, something very characteristic, both of the Greeks and later. Still mapping out the early ground, Simon Blackburn, his pupil Aristotle had, seems to have had a different and perhaps more complex view of this. Yes, well, uh, it's quite difficult to make Aristotle entirely consistent on this. Aristotle, of course, is very keen that we are political animals, at least animals that live in a polis. Uh, human beings are social. Uh, their practical reasoning is to do with the way the city, uh, in other words, the society, uh, conducts itself. Um, and that all seems fine, and you hear him banging the drum for uh, something like a political life, although, of course, a a polis was a small city-state, not a big democracy like ours. Um, but then famously in Book 10 of the Nicomachean Ethics, the last book, he seems to renege on that and starts hymning the life of study and contemplation. He thinks that all the gods can do is study and contemplate because they don't have to bother about earning a living and things like that. Um, and that the ideal theoretical reason, the highest part of the human soul... Uh, has to be exercised, um, and the best possible life, if it's possible for a human being, is to wrap themselves in contemplation, and that would imply, I think, solitude. So in, in that sense, do you suggest uh, that he is coming to agree with what Melissa said Plato was setting out? Well, I think it's quite close, because if you think of Socrates' finest moments as these ones where he communicated with his daemon or he stood wrapped alone in solitude... Uh, then Aristotle is, in effect, saying those are the finest moments. That's exactly what the summer, summum bonum, the summit of human perfection, would be. Did Aristotle and Plato set out what they thought you were trying to do when you <laughs> got so, when you sought and achieved solitude? Well, I don't think I don't think Aristotle did. Um, I think the uh, the word is variously translated as study or contemplation. If it's study, of course, that brings us back to the question that was raised: whether reading, uh, communicating with another mind would genuinely be solitude. Um, if it's contemplation, then, of course, there is a question about what you're contemplating. <laughs> and um, not all our contemplations show us at our best. Um, so I think there's a, a real ambiguity or vagueness in Aristotle about quite what the, the excellence of theoret exercising theoretical reason by yourself would come to. There is a jostling between society and yes. solitude throughout the last two and a half thousand years. Mm. Does that does that jostling take place between the schools of the Epicureans and the Stoics? 
Um, yes, the Stoics are, uh, well, neither the Epicureans nor the Stoics particularly valorize or admire solitude. The Stoics especially uh, insist on you having a, a political life again. Uh, you uh, go and work for the community. Um, the Epicureans uh, were very keen on friendship. One of the uh, catastomatic pleasures, the kind of pleasures they really liked, uh, was the pleasures that were the pleasures of friendship, pleasures of communication with other people in the garden. Uh, that's the Epicurean kind of best pleasure, I think. He's, it, he's quite down on uh, ordinary desires and ordinary lusts. He thinks that uh, they pro provoke anxiety, whereas the life of tranquility, which all the Greeks valorized, or they all like tranquility, um, you get that basically by walking around your garden with friends. So does this suggest that idea, the idea of solitude itself wasn't a very strong idea in the early, early part of the ancient world, seeking after happiness, for instance, was a stronger idea? I'd, I'd say that, absolutely. I mean, it's clearly there for Aristotle, the eudaimonic life, um, life of happiness. Um, for the Stoics, the principal object seems to become, to become self-sufficient, which is why um, the exercise of reason, um, again, becomes uh, uh, very important. But it's really, really reason exercised in deliberation uh, for the Stoics. It's not contemplation. To cut yourself off from what you can't prevent happening, as it were. Yes, that's right. So you learn to be indifferent to uh, pains, the uh, the, the um, domination of a tyrant, has particularly exercised them as well it might have, um, and you learn to be indifferent to whatever the tyrant can do to you. This is a very pronounced theme in Epictetus, who, of course, who was a, a slave to begin with, so he had to learn a certain amount of... Um, you know, school of hard knocks. Um, but uh, then you've got Seneca or Marcus Aurelius, the emperor, both of whom live very, very um, engaged political lives. John Haldane, uh, solitude's, we, we, solitude has been very important in the religious context. So how did it first enter into the Ju Judeo-Christian tradition? No small topic, right. Um, well... <laughs> I think probably... I mean, could I just pick up one thing Please that I'd do. lead into that? I was just going to say, I mean, you began by the, uh, asking about the difference between solitude and loneliness. I mean, one thing that hasn't been said but worth adding, of course, is... And this, I think, speaks to many people's own experience and condition, is that loneliness can be felt amid society. So the, the question of solitude... I mean, it's, it's not sufficient to achieve solitude to be set apart. But equally, on the other side, one can be lonely in the midst of company. So I think it's, uh, it's, it's important, I think, to understand that. <clears throat> the other thing I was going to say is that, obviously, one's anthropology or one's psychology, one's account of what human beings are, is going to be very important for understanding the nature of solitude and its role and so on. And I think that's probably something we're going to return to as we make our way down the centuries. Uh, with regard to sort of Judeo-Christianity... But we, we can sorry. you just develop that, because it's <coughs> such, a, such a strong central idea, <coughs> what you think life is about decides what you think about. Can you just develop that a little? Yes, I mean, I think, for example, just to take up the sort of field you've been discussing just now, I mean, all the ancient schools of philosophy are concerned to try to determine what constitutes a good life for a human being. And they've got different uh, accounts of that. But those accounts differ precisely in part because of their different conception of the world, of human nature, and of humanity's place within the cosmos, the wider world, and so on. Um, and that's why we're going to get these differences coming out between 
Plato and Aristotle and some, I mean, some are highly intellectualist, for example. So in that case, you know, the life of the mind is going to be the primary mode. And so whatever one says about solitude or community is going to be keyed to pursuing the life of the mind. For others, it may be that uh, some form of social life is emphasized and so on. So all of this is going to be keyed to your account of what human beings are. So in the background, either expressed or implicit, is, if you like, an anthropology, an account of the human so in back some, to Christ, early Christianity. Yeah, of course. Right, I, really. I, I took well, of course. Track, yes. Well, what I was going to say is, I mean, it seems to me there are three figures here who uh, are, are going to be very important for setting the terms of this later on when we talk about hermits and, and the monastic tradition, perhaps later on. In in Judaism, the figure is Elijah, uh, ninth century prophet, who um, at one point is, is sort of exiled into the desert. In fact, he he appears in the Quran as well, and he's there described as a prophet of the desert. Um, and at one point, I mean, he, as there's a, there's a sort of contrast here between, as it were, the wildness of the desert and and the softness of the urban setting, and on the one hand, the contrast between the prophet and the people, and these are often set in tension. So what Elijah does is is accuse a king of betrayal of apostasy and so on, of introducing false gods, and uh, he's booted out on this account. But then he goes into the desert, uh, and then there's a journey of forty days and forty nights. Now, um, leaping forward nine centuries, we get to the point of John the Baptist who appears on the scene. Some people think John the Baptist is Elijah returned. Uh, he is some sort of, we would now say, ascetic figure. He lives in the desert, lives off locusts and honey. Uh, he wears primitive clothing and so on. But he's a very important figure. And just as Elijah was sometimes seen by some as the Messiah, uh, the, 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 the promised one to the people of Israel, so people think John the Baptist may be. But no, the Baptist says he's not the one. Uh, he's going to induce another. He baptizes Jesus, and what does Jesus do? He goes into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. And there he's subject to temptation, which again is going to become a significant theme, that the, in the solitude one is tempted. And then that takes <coughs> us to the hermits and the yeah. anchorites uh, and the huge development in, yes. in the first few centuries of Christianity, the desert uh, the desert hermits, the desert hankerites. Yeah. So what we get... Are so just first of all, sorry. John, the, the attraction of the desert, you, you alluded to it, yeah. could you just hit it on the head? Why did they go into the desert? Well, I, I think, that, as I say, the uh, first of all, it's a, it's a place of, of wilderness and escape, but it's also slightly paradoxical because it's also a place of punishment. So somebody might be exiled into the desert, and of course, because it's forbidding, the conditions are very difficult, one might well not, one might well perish there. But equally in the desert, one is away from the temptations, the corruptions, the softness, the indulgence of, of comfort and comfort, comfortable society and so on. So it can be a place of purgation. And I think we'll find within the Western spiritual tradition, broadly speaking, Christian tradition, though it has an Eastern manifestation as well, that purgation is going to be very important. So sometimes there's this thing spoken of as a threefold way. It begins with purgation, it proceeds to illumination, and it ends with unification or communion. But that first stage of purgation, getting rid of our desires, getting rid of our appetites, the desert is a place in which that can be done because life is pared down to the bone. One's removed from the comforts of society and one is self-sufficient or dependent in a very primitive way on whatever is available. And it becomes a lot of people, quite a lot of people, we don't know how many, I don't know, going to the desert, the hermits, the anchorites, 
Um, can you be briskly distinguished? Okay, very quickly. Well, the, 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 uh, the, the, this sort of monastic tradition begins in, in uh, the Eastern Church, in, in, in Egypt, Palestine, Syria, and so on, Asia Minor, um, in the 3rd and 4th centuries, and partly as a response to persecutions of Christians. And so there's a, there's a fleeing the, the uh, oppression. But um, the, there is a debate breaks out, really, as to whether the best form of monastic life is an eremitic one, one on your own, uh, or, or a cenobitic one, which comes from the Greek from, from common life. Uh, so is it common life or is it solitary life? And um, that debate recurs actually within monastic traditions in the West as well. But basically the, the idea of the anchorites, um, all of these in one sense are, are monastic forms in which people are given to spiritual life in, in relative isolation, either from society at large or from one another. Anchorites are, are consecrated into that life um, by a community, and often they, they, they live aside, beside a community, perhaps in a chapel attached or a cell attached and so on, whereas um, hermits may simply go straight off into that themselves. But basically, to, to collapse all this down to a very brief point, what emerges is community life. Um, and we'll see that with Augustine perhaps, but the, the idea is that really, we're, although we, we want to remove ourselves from society, we do not want to remove ourselves from community. Melissa Lane, one of the thinkers associated with the Desert Fathers was St John Cassian. What was his approach to solitude? So he's one of the amazing thinkers of this this early movement um, that, that John was describing. And one of the things that I love in his um, description of conferences that he had with many of these hermit desert, desert fathers, in fact, there were also a, a number of desert mothers, but he mm-hmm. doesn't discuss them, but we know about them from other sources. Um, and he describes this amazing story of particularly one of them, um, another man named John, who had gone into the desert as a hermit. And actually the Greek word, our word hermit comes from the Greek for wilderness or desert. Um, And then discovered that in the desert alone, actually he was more preoccupied both with providing for his material needs and actually with mulling over things that had been said to him. People would come into the desert to kind of marvel at his spiritual achievement and then he would be all puffed up with pride. And so he goes back into a community and actually says, in the community, I'm better able to achieve contemplation because my material needs are provided and in fact, I'm more humbled. So paradoxically, the solitude of contemplation is better achieved in the monastic community than alone in the desert um, hermitage. But also the important Mm -hmm. point that the material difficulties of staying in solitude or interfering with the idea of solitude in the first place. Yeah, exactly. And 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 I think it's not just the material though, it's also the psychological that paradoxically yeah. if you become completely isolated, you might inflate yourself. You inflate your ego in a way potentially. That's a kind of danger, a recurrent danger of of, of that kind of spiritual practice. And living in a kind of community actually tempers that and allows us to keep the ego in its check so that, particularly for for a religious ideal, you can be in communion with God. Simon Blackburn, Mm. uh, a a philosopher gets to grips with that with Boethius, the consolation of philosophy Mm. about that time we're talking about the Desert Father, which which runs right through for the next several hundred, even a thousand years. Mm. Could you tell us uh, how significant that was and what he was saying about solitude? Well, um, Boethius uh, starts off the consolations of philosophy by lamenting his solitude. He's in a terrible state. He's been a a major senator, a major minister of state, as it were. Um, He's been in the king's favor. The king was Theodoric, an Ostrogoth who uh, took over Rome and um, ruled there until about 525, 526. Um, And 
and, and Boethius was the top of the pile. He was, the, he was sort of David Cameron. Um, and then um, it all went pear-shaped. His enemies got him accused of betraying Theodoric um, and uh, generally communicating with Theodoric's enemies. Um, he was chucked into Jug, and in Jug he starts to write the Consolations. Um, he has nothing, as far as I remember, favourable to say about solitude. The problem is that it's absolutely vile and he's lamenting his lot and then philosophia or wisdom mm -hmm. appears to him and the, and the consolations are a dialogue between this forlorn Boethius and philosophy who personifies the, the sort of um, consolation, the, the wisdom, the, um, the recognition that the world is full of vanity, that he should never have bothered about his fame and his riches. Uh, that everything comes to an end, and so on, and so on, and so on, and then the uh, the, di the 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 con the, um, the the text turns to the place of evil in the good world, and you get a fairly standard theodicy. He's trying to reconcile uh, these bad things happening with the uh, providence that guides all things. Is philosophy time to trying to persuade him of the importance of solitude? No, not particularly. Philosophy is busier trying to persuade him that uh, he can rise to be indifferent to his state. And I think as far as that goes, it wouldn't matter whether his state was um, uh, certainly one of being in solitary confinement or one of being in the courts of kings. Um, that is, it should be a matter of indifference to him. There's a very pronounced platonic element, a very pronounced stoic element in Boethius. There's very little Christianity, funnily enough. So how does he tag? How does he link on to what we've been saying about Plato? For um, instance, I think the main sort of Platonic themes come from uh, the Timaeus and to some extent the Gorgias. the The idea that um, somehow there's a providence in all things. There's a pro there's a governing providence. There's a sort of um, certainty of a, a religious metaphysic. That's for sure. Um, but there's no certainty, I think, of... There's no mention of Jesus, there's no mention of resurrection, there's no mention of um, uh, any, any so specifically being, Christian so doctrines. So being solitary has given him no taste whatsoever for, soli for solitude? Not as far as I read it. John Holday? Well, no, I, I agree with Simon about this. I mean, this is... He's in enforced solitude, or as yes. you say, solitary confinement. Really what this is a tribute to is the life of philosophy. I mean, that's mm, really what it's that's about. Right. Everything has fallen apart for him. He's enjoyed greatness in the eyes of the world, and now he's stuck in a prison cell, and he's facing death, which in fact comes to him. Yeah. And really, the, the, the debate is about, as it were, the comfort the consolations that philosophy mm. provides. And the book is very important because it explores, as Simon said, I mean, questions of evil, for example, time is an issue there, determinism and mm. so on. And the question is, are we trapped? Are we victims in some sense of circumstance and time? And the answer is, at the end of the day, no, because we can transcend all of that. And where we go to is a place, in, a platonic place, mm. in which you contemplate truth and so on. So these sufferings are nothing, as it were, by comparison. Can I just add one thing briefly to say that the um, it used to be thought, precisely because of the absence of religion in this, mm. that the author of this work was distinct from another Boethius, who's a, a, a lot Christian. Of Christian but actually, uh, that's, I think, been resolved now. It is one and the same person, and he does write religious writings as well. And in fact, in Pavia in Italy, he and St. Augustine are entombed in the same church, and he's there venerated as a saint. But the point about this is, this is an exploration 
of philosophy and the comforts of philosophy. Can we go back to things said about <coughs> solitude? You mentioned Saint Augustine. Could you develop anything he said in this uh, in this yeah. context? Well, Augustine, I think, is very important. Um, not so much as well for what he has to say about solitude and the confessions. I'll, I'll just mention that very briefly in a second. But he is the author, really, of the first monastic rule. I mean, the one that is, is most famous is probably the rule of St. Benedict, but that comes about a century after Augustine. Augustine sets out the rules for a community, uh, for, for a, a monastic but community. I'm sorry to be so no. persistent, but how is this yeah. connecting with solitude? Okay, so what happens is this. There's a famous uh, chapter in his Confessions... Um, chapter 8, in which he recounts really the stages that led to his conversion to Christianity. Mm. And in the first of those, he, he has a, an encounter with one group of philosophers. First of all, he begins by reading Cicero, and there's renunciation and so on, but he feels he can't renounce the life of pleasure. Uh, then he t tussles with the question of evil, but eventually he comes to an understanding that is a combination of Platonism and Christianity. Um, and in this, he, he says that you know we have to go into our souls and discover in ourselves the presence of God. There's a line in the, the Confessions that's very famous, you made us for yourself, Lord, and our hearts are restless until they come to rest in you. So the thought is, is a diagnosis of human restlessness. But you only come to recognize the presence of God when you've, as it were, set aside the world and turned in an interior way. So that's his, uh, so that's that, his description, as it were. That's his take, as it were, on solitude. Yeah, he says, you turn me as a mirror to myself, and in there I find myself, and so on. But can I just say what's important is that actually he comes out of that into community. The thing that he does is that uh, he, is, he goes into solitude in the garden, he steps away, he breaks down into tears, he goes further, retreats further in the garden, and then famously he hears these words over the garden wall, take up and read, tole lege, and he, um, this is a moment of conversion. But what I was going to say is what he immediately, shortly thereafter, does is establishes a community. And then he writes a rule for this community about how they should interact. And it is about sharing their spiritual lives together. It is finding that one is best when together in the spiritual life and so on. And that becomes very important. So we're talking about solitude and society. Yeah. The, the, those two going. But Melissa Lane... We come to Montaigne, as we often do when we're talking about thinking, um, a 16th century philosopher. He had various things to say about solitude. Could you tell us what they were and whether you thought they had resonance? Uh, one comment first on what we've been saying so far, which is I think that what, what we're seeing is that in the classical tradition, solitude is very important in this idea of philosophical contemplation and thinking but you can do that while still physically being present in the city and that is a great contrast from the desert father tradition that strain of christianity which says you have to go into the wilderness leave the city physically and also in order also to leave it mentally even though as we saw now in a way that brings us to montaigne because what's interesting in montaigne is that he does retreat into his country estate he's a landed gentleman who goes on serving um, in as, as a sort of local magistrate. Um, but he suggests that you need to have solitude. You retreat into, the, into your estate. You retreat into your book room, into your library. And that becomes for him a model of what he calls the back shop of the mind. So you need to have in your own mind a place of solitude. Although, again, it's not that you live there all the time. You live there in a way that enables to, you to prepare yourself to be in society in the right way. So again, so solitude is a preparation for society, but society in some ways might also be a preparation and a model for solitude. He talks about mm. living in solitude, but he's living with his family, and one of his books is about friendship. So, mm. so what about that? 
Yeah, well, this is what's so interesting, I think, is that solitude is very rarely a kind of complete, um, all-encompassing ideal. It's Except a, it's it is a, in the Christian tradition. Well, even even there, as, as John says, for, for most, um, if you're living in a monastic community, you spend many hours a day in solitude praying, but then you're eating in a community even if in silence. So it's, again, you're moving in and out of solitude. And I think for Montaigne, again, he, it wasn't a contradiction for him to love friendship, to love his family, but to find that he needed these hours in his library. Where again, though, paradoxically, he said, what I'm doing is conversing with the great minds of the past through books. I'm, I'm in solitude, but in, in conversation in my own mind with them. Simon Blackburn, would you, do you think that Descartes gave a put philosophy, put solitude back into the philosophical arena? Uh, yes, if I could just say something about Montaigne quickly. I mean, Montaigne, I think, was also very keen that you didn't retire into solitude unless you'd prepared your mind in advance. Mm-hmm. You'd actually got sort of well-stocked, a well-stocked mind. And that, I think, uh, is important because otherwise philosophical contemplation can just be sort of, uh, well, as Hegel called it, it's like burning incense and listening to music. It's not actually thinking. Um, so, So I think we'll come to... Hegel and uh, more social philosophers, socially minded philosophers in time. With luck. Oh, with luck. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, Okay, Um, Descartes, yes. Well, uh, the thing every beginner in philosophy knows about Descartes is that he, in the meditations, um, he's sitting there alone in his uh, stove heated room and he starts to um, wonder about the foundations of knowledge and he tries to strip away everything uh, that he thinks he knows. Um, the uh, the usual gloss on this for beginners in philosophy is to uh, that they should ask themselves the question, how do I know I'm not dreaming? And indeed Descartes is preoccupied by the possibility of universal deception, of living in a virtual reality, as we might put it. Um, I think actually the context is much more historical than that, but the essential thing that he did do was say you've got to do it for yourself you've got to get out of your own head the apparatus for uh, gaining confidence in the external world confidence in the testimony of others confidence that things are as your um, mind tells you they'll be and to do that you've got to get rid of the tyranny of the senses Um, he's living at a time when sense experience suddenly began to feel a little wobbly Um, Copernicus had told us that the earth goes round the sun, not as it appears the sun goes round the earth. Um, People were beginning to discover the microscope and the telescope more or less simultaneously, uh, and everything could appear very different depending on how you looked at it. So the arrival of perspective is very important. And um, Descartes is very definite that you've got to do it for yourself. You've got to do it out of your own contemplative and rational resources. And that's the turn to the self which dominated philosophy really until probably Hegel. Did did the return to the self nudge people back into the idea of solitude, solitude and the self being related? Um, I don't think they did particularly. Descartes himself was a bit of a solitary. He lived an awful lot of his life sort of concealing himself actually from other people. Um... But I think in the end he's not he's not been seen as a uh, a paragon or a paradigm of the solitary life in the way that some of the people John's been talking about were. 
he um, he's been seen as leaving an intellectual problem, and it was a big intellectual problem. It was basically what we call reconciling the the normal world view with the scientific world view. Sorry, I'll just say one thing John on that. Holland. I was going to say, I mean, we, we, as Simon rightly says, I mean, we have Descartes, he comes to us as the founder of epistemology or the theory of knowledge, or at least of a certain kind of theory of knowledge. But in fact, it's worth saying that there's another respect in which he's continuous with these spiritual traditions and these ancient traditions, because as the title Meditations already takes mm, us back yeah. to ancient titles. But also, he is a product of the Jesuit Royal College of La Flèche, mm. and the Jesuits were founded by Ignatius Loyola, the author of the Spiritual Exercises. And the Spiritual Exercises are concerned with the practice of discernment, of... of um, discerning within one's own soul and within the soul of others and so on. Mm. So in fact there is in Descartes mm. uh, an echo uh, of which he was fully aware mm. of this spiritual tradition and, and I, I don't just necessarily mean a religious tradition but of this idea that philosophy is actually a form of practice. Simon? Uh, yes. Well, <coughs> there are a couple of things to say there. One is, of course, that he, uh, famously his climb out from this uh, sort of nightmare that we might be living in a virtual reality does go via the goodness of God. He mm. remembered that, and he was very anxious that his work should appeal to the orthodox. Um, the other is, I think it's not so much called a meditation because of its spiritual side, as, as John perhaps hinted. I think it's called a meditation because it's going to take you time. It's going to take you time to um, climb out from under the domination of uninterpreted sense experience and learn just to trust your clear and distinct ideas, which is what Descartes banging the drum for at this point. So it's a meditation because you can't just read it in an afternoon. You've got to let it marinade. Melissa, can we talk about what's happening in a more secular area, although religious persons might be involved? Can we talk about Adam Smith's uh, notion uh, of this subject, which we're going round and round... Uh, the edges. I don't know where we've got to the heart of it. Did he think about solitude? If so, what did he think about solitude? Well, well, I think Smith is interesting because he's very much opposed to solitude. So he's yes. one of the figures of the 18th century Enlightenment who really are suspicious of solitude. Um, Hume, who's his great friend, attacks solitude as one of the monkish virtues, and we've heard that it is a monkish virtue. But Smith and Hume both think that actually the problem is that in solitude, again, we may inflate our own egos. Um, we may not be able to judge rightly either of the world or other ourselves. So there's a real contrast, I mean, uh, between um, someone like Rousseau, for example, who would say um, uh, just a bit before Smith, um, you know, it's only in solitude that we can really restore ourselves to health. And Smith says, actually, the most powerful remedy, what will take us to tranquility is not solitude, it's actually society. And so that's a very interesting moment where the the, the, both the classical and the religious kind of adulation for solitude and contemplation really hits the uh, Enlightenment um, concern for sociability and the value of sociability. Yeah. But the Enlightenment, mm -hmm. especially Hume, is yeah. hammering solitude and, and, yeah. and celibacy uh, very hard indeed. It, uh, it, it's useless. Uh, it, it takes you nowhere. It just what have you to think about if you're thinking only about yourself and so on and so forth. So very, you might almost call it a secular, but certainly an empirical view of solitude. Where does it get you? What does it prove? What does it end up as? Exactly. And so that's really beginning, in a way, even before Hegel, that it's beginning the turn toward a more social idea of the self, whereas the solitude traditions in classical and Christian ideas were 
very much that solitude was the authentic self, that it's only in solitude that you can find your true voice, that you can still the false voices of society. And now for the Enlightenment is saying, actually, no, it's in conversation with others and real external conversation, the kind of conversation we're having here, mm. not in our own minds, that we can actually um, find truth. Yeah, I, I want to say you. I should, please, Simon, you come on and then someone say something. Okay. I just thought it's it's a pleasant uh, thing to remember that this is one of the few things that Johnson and Hume would have agreed about. There's a wonderful uh, statement from Johnson: "Solitude," he added one day, "is dangerous to reason without being favourable to virtue." For the solicitations of sense are always at hand. The solitary mortal is certainly luxurious, probably superstitious, and possibly mad. The, the mind stagnates for want of employment, grows morbid, and is extinguished like a candle in foul air. Yeah, they, they have good lines, and there's a wonderful thing by Hume. I haven't got time to read yeah. up. I'll pop it in the newsletter or something. It's absolutely true. But at the same time, you had Rousseau turning to nature, uh, and having an enormous effect, which is rippled through ever since. And then Wordsworth, uh, mm. Solitude, the Bacon, from the Bacon Diet, look, and the Bliss of Solitude, and so on. You have the whole Romantic movement, the Nature movement, which is which is taking solitude, solitude in nature, as seriously they think as everybody took solitude with God. Now, where does that take us? In the in a, is that a philosophy? Is that what's going on, John? Well, I think part of what's going on is, is a return to an antecedent state. So the thought is that uh, over the centuries we've developed in certain ways that have actually distanced us from our authentic, true, real nature. And uh, one way of trying to get back to that is by speculating about our origins, and that's why Rousseau, um, you know, the idea of the state of nature in Rousseau is important and in other thinkers as well, to try to work out how we got here and what was it like originally. And many who move in that direction think, well, how it was originally was we were individuals. We were on our own. Uh, and we weren't in competition for resources because we were few and there were plenty of resources. We just picked the apples from the trees and so on. But we, there's a story to be told about how we moved from that condition of relative ease, as it were, at oneness uh, with the world, to one in which we're in conflict with one another and perhaps if we move to the 19th century and on, you know, where Hopkins talks about, you know, the world trod, speared and one thing and another, um, that we've alienated from one another and alienated from the world. So there is this big movement to try to recover what is authentic and original in human beings. And nature comes onto the scene there because that is where is our original home, our original place of origin set against, again, it's a bit like the, the desert and the town. I mean, uh, nature is set against the urban setting. And I think a lot of these figures... And then, of course, nature itself becomes a substitute for God. Yes. Um, just one thing, if I could say very quickly, is I think in the Eastern traditions there's a lot of talk about meditation. In the Western traditions it's about contemplation. You always con and contemplation takes an object. There's something you are contemplating. And whether it's God, whether it's the soul, whether it's nature and so on. So I think nature has taken the place, for some of these people, of God. You want to come in, Melissa? Yeah, so, so I think there's a real contrast between the Greeks for whom you can be solitary but even within the polis and then for the Christians where you flee into the desert as a place of purgation, as John mm. said earlier. And now for Rousseau and then leading into the Romantics and the American Transcendentalists, nature is actually speaking to us. Nature actually, either God is speaking to us through nature or nature alone is speaking to us. Nature is now a positive place where we can experience authenticity rather than simply a place of self-mortification. Yes, could you develop uh, Emerson and, and Thoreau a little more, please? Yeah, so... So we're talking about 19th century America, transcendentalist and so on, and actually going and living the life, going into the woods and being and that sort of thing. Exactly. So, so for Emerson, it's important that... Um, 
he says society is best when you actually, it, when it comes closest to being in solitude. Um, and he talks about, so in contrast to Montaigne, for whom when you're reading books, you're solitary. Emerson says, no, you have to leave your books. You have to go out and look at the stars. That's actually the way that you can genuinely experience solitude. You can hear the authentic voice of nature. Um, and then, of course, Thoreau, as you mentioned in the introduction, is Emerson's younger disciple. And he follows, he actually goes and lives for two years, as you said. Now, of course, he's only a mile from the nearest other people. So it's a very interesting thing that it's about kind of for him, the solitude, it's about the deliberateness with which he chooses solitude. And and choosing to live in an independent life, to build his own house with his own hands. So solitude becomes for him a kind of an image of independence. And of course, that's a very deeply American um, ideal. Simon, I know you want to talk about Hegel and Kant. I, I didn't think we were going to get that. I really didn't. But could you tell us about how Wittgenstein seemed to resolve it as far as uh, some philosophers were concerned? Just well, briefly. Uh, yes, very, I'm not watching you this. I know, I know, I know. Well, I, I think um, for, for Hegel, I mean, it's patterns of mutual recognition uh, that constitute our self-consciousness. Self-consciousness is essentially a matter of seeing yourself in another person's eyes. And there's a whole so-called master-slave dialectic in the phenomenology which tries to elaborate on this idea. And I think that really became very important. It became important to Bradley, to Hegel's followers in Britain, to Collingwood and to Wittgenstein. Um, this is the social identity of the self. Um, uh, uh, Melissa mentioned Thoreau um, trying to, or Emerson trying to get away from language. Well, you can't do any thinking without language. And yet language is a social gift. It's something you're given by your mother or father or your community. It's not something you do for yourself. Um, and Hegel, I think, saw the capacity of ourselves to hold each other to meanings, to hold each other to the norms governing our language, uh, to the semantics governing our terms. That constitutes our identity. Without that, we wouldn't even be thinkers. Uh, and Wittgenstein picks that up and runs with it in the later philosophy. Um, of course, the later philosophy is, in, is a minefield of interpretation. I think it's another program as uh, well. I think it's another I program, mean, yes. But finally... But, uh, but I think it's very important that this social identity becomes a, a drumbeat of Hegel, Marx, the entire 20, uh, 19th, late 19th and early 20th century. Therefore, finally, John, John Holden, is the idea of the Christian notion, <coughs> the Judaic notion... Does any of that remain in philosophical discourse? Well, I think the pattern, as it were, replays itself. As I said, I mean, there, there may be a substitution of a different object, whether the object is truth, for some it's God. But I think that we can, in a way, become full circle because we, we began with the idea that thought is a conversation, an interior conversation in the soul. And we've just heard the emphasis on language and the necessity of language and so on. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, thank you, Minister Lane, Simon Blackburn, John Holday. Next week we'll be talking about the 12th century medieval writer and composer Hildegard of Bingen. Thanks for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. This, it was a bit daft trying to do all that in one programme with Tom it's Morris. <laughs> <laughs> Next time I'll divide it up into six programmes. and hand, Absolutely, I blame the producer. <laughs> I, felt very, I felt very proud of getting through two centuries. Yeah. <laughs> it's some, I don't know. Do you, do you think there's anything to be got out of doing that kind of sweep? 
I think we did get some big themes, you know, so the, this contrast between solitude is really about thinking you can do it anywhere to, no, you have to be in the desert. You have to really leave society behind physically to, okay, no, you have to be in the wilderness, but you want to be in, you want to be in nature in order to hear the voice of it. I think we did get that. Yeah. And, and, yeah. that, and I mean, that is, a, that is something yes. that comes out and only with and the And I think it, it also speak. came out that nearly mm-hmm. everybody has a dialectic between solitude yes. and yeah. community. Yeah. So that's, yeah. that, I think, came over very yeah. well. Yeah. I mean, structurally, it seems to me, uh, you don't have two-part programs, but it seems to me that this is, would be a case for one. I mean, you could do it something like solitude in the pre-modern world yeah. and then yeah. solitude in the modern world, because we didn't get round... I mean, you touched upon Wordsworth and such like, but the whole sort of... Mm. The role of solitude in art, for example, mm. I think is yeah, very important. I mean, yeah. yeah, I mean, had been time, I, mm-hmm. Camus has this little... In Exile in the Kingdom, he has a, a short story, which is a collection of short stories, but one is called The Artist at Work. Mm-hmm. And in that, uh, some chap who's had a sort of rather limited and unsuccessful artistic career then finds a patron, becomes successful, but then all these hangers-on attached to him, and he retreats by stages. And finally a canvas is found in which there's some words inscribed, and it's not clear, is it solitary or is it solidary? Now, for mm-hmm. Camus, I mean, this is partly a sort of satire on, on success and so on, but it's also meant to be an exploration of the human condition and so the whole existentialist concern yeah. about aloneness in a world not of our making and so on I think is mm. is important. In another case I mm-hmm. just was looking at the work of British artist Richard Long whose work you might know, he walks in the landscape, yeah. he produces lines and so on, but some of these are thousand mile walks and he's been doing this for 40 years, it's been a solitary life but again it it's to bring it back. I mean, it's to, it's to share the fruits of solitude. I mean, I think one of the other really interesting <coughs> questions is what happens now when we are all are, are on our phones all the time. And so even when you're alone, you're very often you're in real with dialogue with others. Right. Exactly. And so, and so actually, but I think that's a real, it's a real thing to think about because if the tradition, the philosophical and religious traditions are right, that you have to train yourself in solitude to even be in society in a fruitful way. And then you're never really in solitude now. I think there are real questions to be asked there about, you know, how do we continue to cultivate solitude in, in yeah. these conditions? I, I wish we'd mentioned that mm-hmm. Thoreau, I mean, he, uh, he he makes this parade of his independence and his solitude. He went to have dinner with his mum every week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. but, but, but see, I think, but I think that's in a way, but that's the point, is that yeah. solitude doesn't, it's not just a matter mm-hmm. of how many hours do you spend alone. No, it's actually it's this question no. of what's mm-hmm. the content and no. quality of the hours in which you are alone, and that's mm-hmm. that's the mm-hmm. That's really the fundamental question. So, but but I but I agree. I mean, it, so it's easy to kind of poke yeah. fun at him, and you know, there is I'm something. I'm more and more beginning to agree with John Holden that we should have done two programs. <laughs> but also, on, but there's masses to come back yeah, to. Yeah, like we've yeah. we've mm. nibbled at the end of various big changes. Well, Byronic <laughs> solitude, of course, as well. The sort of the, the rem- I mean, it's not just Wordsworth and mm. say Coleridge, the nature poets, but Byronic solitude, yeah. the solitude of the the outcast, the hero who sort of walks alone because he can't stand what's around yeah. him. And That's, yet again, you see one thing we didn't get to, but uh, I think it's, you know, we, for philosophers, we're interested in Kant and autonomy and self-governance, mm. but but a, a more important theme for many of these figures is not autonomy, but authenticity. I mean, being really mm. oneself. Mm. Mm. And to be really oneself, one first of all has to know what, is, what, what oneself is, is, as yeah. it were. But I think well, that would be a great program, yeah. authenticity, authenticity, yeah. I think. Or, or indeed autonomy and authenticity. Polonius, yeah. Polonius onwards. Yeah. Yeah. But notice in all of these authors, actually, or not all of the authors, but in general, this convergence. Right? It's actually very few people who say that the right life for human beings is simply to be alone, or to be utterly immersed in society. What they all return to is the idea that what you want here is a balance, mm. and that's why I think, say, Augustine's rule is very interesting. 
and, and the monastic settlement in general is very interesting because you go off to your cell, mm. but you come back to common life. Yeah. Mm. So you, you eat together. There's some pr- so the solitary mm. prayer, but there's also communal prayer. And then, of course, what has also happened within the monastery is the spiritual reading. So as you sit around your tables, there's somebody up there who's reading you the rule of St. Benedict, the rule right. of whatever. Yeah. So it's, it's, a, it's a common life as well. Would you like some tea, coffee? Here, Tom Morris is here to deliver <laughs> either of our two wishes. I'm fine. There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio4. I saw in a newspaper headline recently said 10 youths jailed for possession of narcotics. Well, I didn't read the story because that headline told the whole story about drugs. Here's a poem I wrote about drugs. Could there be ruined regions of the mind where reason didn't reach to draw the line? Where the brain was pounded by some drug, gave in till a hole was finally dug? And who can know on what part is that hole? And who can say what that does to the soul? Well, not only the soul, my friend, but how about the body? Boy, it can take a beating in a lot of different ways, from the drug itself if it's not used properly, or from the law if, um, if the laws are abused, there's a heavy penalty that has to be paid. And believe me, jail ain't worth it. it. Just ain't worth it. And did you know that if you're caught carrying drugs in your car that they can confiscate your car and sell it at public auction? I don't know who made that law, but that's one of the laws. Well, all of us, though young and old, should study the changes that have come about in our land, for changes must come. That's the whole process of life. And in a time of change, there comes distorted images and uncertain values. And we all must search. We must search for what is truth. The old man turned off the radio, said, where did all of the old songs go? Kids sure play funny music these days, play it in the strangest ways. He said, it seemed to me like they've all gone wild. It was peaceful back when I was a child. Well, man, could it be that the girls and boys trying to be heard above your noise and the lonely voice of youth cries, what is truth? The little boy of three sitting on the floor looks up and says, Daddy, what is war? Son, that's when people fight and die. Little boy of three says, Daddy, why? Young man of 17 in Sunday school, being taught the golden rule. And by the time another year's gone around, it may be his turn to lay his life down. Can you blame the voice of youth for asking, what is truth? Young man sitting on a witness stand, man with the book says, raise your hand. Repeat after me, I solemnly swear. Judge looks down at his long hair. And although the young man solemnly swore, 
Nobody seemed to hear anymore. And it didn't really matter if the truth was there. It was the cut of his clothes and the length of his hair. And the lonely voice of youth cries, what is truth? Young girl dancing to the latest beat Found new ways to move her feet Young man speaking in the city square Trying to tell somebody that he cares Yeah, the ones that you're calling wild Gonna be the leaders in a little while This old world's waking to a newborn day And I solemnly swear it'll be their way You better help that voice of youth find What is truth? And the lonely voice of youth cries, what is truth? Welcome back to the River Rain Show. I hope you enjoyed that uh, BBC special. Um, it was quite academic, maybe a bit more than I thought, uh, but it was philosophy of solitude. So you have, if you listened um, closely, you have a quite the detailed background now of different philosophers and different thinkers and how they how they uh, described what is necessary to achieve enlightenment or self-knowledge and whether solitude is necessary, whether you could do that, whether you needed to be like the hermit out in the desert or the forest, or whether you could do it within the city. And um, we sure know right now when we're quarantined that we can do it in the city, at home. We can do it when we find uh, or create the space to do it where we have enough quiet to be, uh, to hear ourselves think. So, um, and I love that Johnny Cash song too, the storytelling kind of song of uh, what is truth. So, you know, I wonder what you're feeling these days about truth, about, I'm sure when there's enough time to think and remember stuff and probably replay things in your mind that you haven't thought of in a while. Maybe you're dreaming of people you haven't thought of in ages. Maybe there's some, hopefully there's some sense of closure that is coming to you from this, uh, from this time. Some sense of making peace with the past, understanding relationship dynamics, getting a better sense of how you can go forward in your career, how you can... Uh, adjust things in your home so that it's more efficient. Maybe you're making, maybe you're finally feeling some uh, room to make big lifestyle changes. So I hope for you that this is a really productive time. And um, I hope that the solitude is something that you can embrace and see that there is a lot of value in the, and, uh, you know, opportunity in this time as well. Just going to read you another uh, poem. And then I have another uh, much shorter segment about the psychology of solitude 
that just talks about it maybe in a little more of a, well, a psychological way instead of philosophical way, just to see if that helps you um, process this time as well. So this uh, poem is called Because I Love You by Alison Greyhurst. The fire around you is a bird. It will perch, nest, and then next season it'll be gone. Your journey is into the hailstorm, but you will be healed, and I will go on loving you like I love you, like the humpback whale does its song. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's basically saying, I know that you need to go into a personal storm inside yourself to heal. And I will love you the same way because I love you anyway. Because I see who you are. And your personal journey or your storm or your descent into depression and up and down doesn't change that I see you and I love you for who you are. It's beautiful, isn't it? Let's listen to uh, another song here before we head into the other segment about the psychology of solitude. This is from Lord of the Rings. Thank you. 
The fear of finding oneself alone, that is what they suffer from, and so they don't find themselves at all. Human beings are social by nature and unfit to endure extreme cases of isolation. If we are alone for too long, our mental faculties can degrade, leading to states of insanity and deep despair. The use of solitary confinement and exile are practices with ancient roots, indicating that people have long understood just how deeply the fear of isolation runs through our veins. But in the modern day, our fears are not restricted to extreme forms of isolation. Rather, many of us fear being alone for any extended period of time. In this video, we'll investigate this fear, explain the detrimental effects it can have on one's relationships, and explore the benefits of overcoming this fear and learning to find solace in solitude. Many thinkers have suggested that the fear of solitude is at root a fear of oneself. In our normal daily routines, busied with work and chores and most often in the presence of others, our social persona comes to the fore, and frightening thoughts and emotions are pushed outside of our awareness. But when away from the restricting confines of others, these darker aspects of ourselves tend to rise to the surface and make their presence known. It is what one takes into solitude that grows there, wrote Nietzsche, the beast within included. Hence, there is a danger in spending a significant amount of time isolated from others, as there will come a time when, broken down by the beast within, solitude will weigh us down and become a great curse. There are some who can endure this crisis of solitude, and through a heroic effort tame and integrate the darkness within. But most would be destroyed by such a confrontation, which is why Nietzsche thought many should be dissuaded from solitude. The default response for those for whom solitariness is too heavy a weight to bear is to cling to others to ensure they never feel alone. One man runs to his neighbor because he is looking for himself, and another because he wants to lose himself. Your bad love of yourselves makes solitude a prison to you. Those who lose themselves in others may be saved from their solitude, but they always turn out to be crippled versions of the person they could have become. In order for us to actualize our potential, we need to fulfill what the psychologist Abraham Maslow called our meta-needs or highest needs, which include the drive for truth, beauty, and goodness. These needs, as Ernest Becker noted in his book The Denial of Death, cannot be completely fulfilled by other people. It is impossible to get blood from a stone, he wrote, to get spirituality from a physical being. Any attempt to fulfill the totality of our meta-needs through an intimate relationship will result in a godlike idealization of the partner and a resultant slavish dependence on them for our self-worth and identity. If the partner becomes God, they can just as easily become the devil, wrote Becker. The reason is not far to seek. If you find the ideal love and try to make it the sole judge of good and bad in yourself, the measure of your strivings, you become simply the reflex of another person. You lose yourself in the other, just as obedient children lose themselves in the family. No wonder that dependency, whether of the god or the slave in the relationship, carries with it so much underlying resentment. To ensure we don't, like many individuals today, fall victim to dependence-driven relationships, we must develop what the 20th century psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott called the capacity to be alone. 
When the fear of solitude makes us dependent on others, we become overly compliant out of a fear of abandonment, and thus build up what Winnicott called a false self, that is, our personality becomes a mere reflex of how we believe others want us to be. It is in developing the capacity to be alone that the false self can be broken down, thought Winnicott, rendering us able to rediscover our true self, or in other words, our authentic feelings and needs. In the modern day, most are oblivious to the benefits of solitude. Instead, many unknowingly adhere to what is called object relations theory, which is based on two key assumptions, that the maturation of one's personality can only be facilitated through interpersonal relationships, and that these relationships are the primary, if not sole, source of meaning in life. In his influential work Attachment and Loss, John Bowlby, an adherent of this view, wrote, Intimate attachments to other human beings are the hub around which a person's life revolves, not only when he is an infant or toddler or schoolchild, but throughout his adolescence and his years of maturity as well, and on into old age. Taken to their extreme, the assumptions held by object relations theorists imply that the individual's life has no meaning apart from interpersonal relationships thus overlooking the well-established fact that meaning can be found and personal growth stimulated when we cultivate, in solitude, a relationship with some form of creative work that consumes our attention. As the 20th century psychiatrist Anthony Storr argued in his book Solitude, A Return to the Self, it is in the struggle to give form and order to an external creative work that we also, often without knowing it, are imposing form and order on our mind. Maturation and integration can take place within the isolated individual to a greater extent than I had allowed for. Introverted creators are able to define identity and achieve self-realization by self-reference, that is, by interacting with their work rather than by interacting with other people. It is this ability to achieve self-realization by developing a relationship with our work that led the Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky to claim solitude for the mind to be as essential as food is for the body. In solitude we can forge our character away from the often constricting external demands of others and maintain our independence in the relationships we do cultivate, thus ensuring we do not, like many today, lose our identity in them. Yet as we learn to flourish in solitude, we must not dismiss the dangers of it which Nietzsche spoke of, dangers which led Goethe to write, there is nothing more dangerous than solitude. We can increase our capacity to deal with these dangers, however, if we consider the possibility that the benefits of solitude are embedded in its dangers, meaning that it is only by voluntarily seeking out solitude and confronting the darkness within that we can extract the benefits of being alone, and perhaps even eventually attain the rare self-confidence of one who has gained sovereignty over himself. As the poet Rainer Maria Rilke wrote, You should not let yourself be confused in your solitude by the fact that there is something in you that wants to move out of it. We know little, but that we must trust in what is difficult is a certainty that will never abandon us. It is good to be solitary, for solitude is difficult. That something is difficult must be one more reason for us to do it.
That was <clears throat> Sicilian for cello. Beautiful. Uh, what a beautiful song for introspection and, and rest. That is, I found that deeply restful. Here's another beautiful poem by the same person as before, Alison Greyhurst. This is called In Waiting For. In prayer, in the shower, behind broken blinds, peering out, listening for the next move, hearing a faraway crow, playground screams, idiot conversations. A dozen times, a dozen days, playing the sieve taker, the monastic overseer, doing only what the day allows, wondering where the campfires burn and if they will ever burn close past midnight for me. Alison Greyhurst in Waiting For. A lot of us have that feeling of waiting right now. And in our waiting, there's a lot that we can delve into as you hopefully get a sense of by the rest of this show. Nobody can really explain to you what you will get out of embracing solitude until you've done it, just like nobody can tell you what raspberries taste like until you've eaten them. It's something you just have to surrender and let yourself experience. So, as we end the show this evening, I'd like to just say to everyone... See this quarantine time as an opportunity to become a mystic. Take this time for yourself to deeply look at your life and not be afraid of what you see and of what you feel. Let those things that are stirring inside, those longings, those long overdue decisions, the, the true raw feeling you have about something in your life, let it come up, let it be seen, and let yourself alter your course of action to be happier. Because through your introspection and through this period of waiting, you have an enormous opportunity to reroute yourself when we come out. It's going to be a new world out there, and everyone's going to be unsure of what it looks like and so it means we're all going to be recreating or co-creating something new and so for now stay safe go inward with the mystical traditions and when you emerge you will emerge reinvented I hope you enjoyed the show if you want to reach me for any reason you can go to river-rain.com I'll leave you off on one last song, appropriately called Waiting.
dream.